Hey, podcast listeners. This is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. Welcome to our Washington, D.C. series. In this interview, Matias and I sat down with Katie Zesma. She's a BU alum who currently writes for the Washington Post. She formerly wrote for the New York Times, and over her decade and a half in journalism, she has covered some of the most important stories in this country, including the church abuse scandal, Sandy Hook, the capture of Whitey Bulger, the Boston Marathon bombing, and much more. Now, one of her specialties is drugs in America. She has covered the opioid epidemic and actually had the beat on it a little bit before it became a prominent news story, and she talks about that in this episode. She has experienced a lot of change in journalism throughout her career, so we talk about the ways in which journalism has changed, and we also talk about her experience covering Ted Cruz on the campaign trail last year. Now, before we get this interview started, we wanted to extend a thank you to Ms. Zezima, and we also wanted to extend a thank you to the Boston University DC offices for letting us use their space to record this interview and to work throughout our week in Washington. And real quick, this is just a reminder that this episode is one episode in a series of nine that we did while we were in Washington, D.C. on a range of issues. We encourage you to listen to all of them. That said, let's get started on this discussion about journalism, about opioids, and Ms. Zezima's amazing career. What did you major in? I majored in history, so I did not meet. I mean, I took journalism classes. Like Chris, D- gotta give a shout out to Chris Daly. He's a great professor. Oh yeah, I, 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 t- I took a, I took a class with Chris Daly actually last year. He's awesome. He's awesome. I really, really enjoyed enjoyed He's his class. Totally, sure. totally the best. So I did that, but I was I was a history major, um, and I thought I might go to law school, but I ended up spending a lot of time at the Daily Free Press. So the grades were not exactly there. So what what were, what were you focusing on in history? Was there a specific concentration, or do you just do the, the sort of broad history degree to pull upon everything? For the most part, it was, Amer- it was American history. I mean, I did the broad the broad stuff. You know, took classes on on Chinese history and Russian history, which were really interesting. Um, but for the most part, it was American history. So. Nice. I said. So what what was your first gig in journalism uh, after you graduated? So I have kind of a weird like a weird roundabout thing. It doesn't normally happen like this. So I, you know, was trying to figure out where to go and what to do. And I loved Boston and I wanted to try and stay there. So there was this job at the New York Times for like a bureau manager type job in the Boston Bureau. So um, I applied and got it, much to my shock. So um, I started there and it was actually during the clergy sex abuse scandal. This is in 2002. Spotlight. Yes, wow. spotlight. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, yes, for those of you who have not seen the movie Spotlight, uh, highly recommend it. It's about the Boston Globe and how they broke this story. Um, so it was very busy in Boston, and I kind of I started by actually going to church every Sunday right. when I was still in college to listen to Cardinal Law, who then was the head of the Archdiocese of Boston, uh, at Mass, um, and you know interview people afterward and. Um, you know, from there, kind of the reporting, you know, I was kind of tasked with more and more reporting. I would call lawyers and that sort of thing. Um, so did you did you have any interaction with uh, the infamous uh, Mitch Garabedian? I did. I did have, yes, I did actually have a lot of, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of interaction with, with Mitch Garabedian and like the, a lot of the people in, in the movie, which was really interesting. So, so is he uh, is he as ornery as he's depicted in uh, in the accounts of, uh, of of those events? You know, he was really open with the press, which was really okay. you know kind of kind of great for us. I mean, I think they his they I think they got his office pretty good. It was 
it was like just lots of papers everywhere. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, he would hold press conferences. It was funny. Our office was actually like right across the alley from their office. Oh, convenient. So, yeah, which was very which was which was was interesting. But um, you know, so I, I I covered that, and it was um, I, I mean it was it was it was it was horrible, but it was, you know, a, a really, I mean, it was the, the story that was happening, the biggest story in the country at that right. point, and in some ways the the world, you know, and especially for it to happen in, in Boston, which is, is, is so Catholic, and, um, you know, to, to, it really kind of taught me how to, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, reporter, you need to be a human before you're a reporter, right, and right. you really need to be, be sensitive with people, and you know, really just make sure that you're doing right by the people who you interview. And I think that, you know, I was taught that from a very early moment on that, on that story, because it was, it was, it was just so, you know, it was such a tragic thing and so, so, so sensitive and, um, you know, and it was so emotional and, you know, I'm Catholic and I understand, you know, it, it was just a very, very sensitive thing. So I think it taught me from a very, very early age to be, a human first and a reporter second in many ways. So, right in in getting involved in that right away because that's like you said, huge story, biggest story in the mm-hmm. country. Um, at that point, you had been the editor of the news section at the Daily Free Press. Mm-hmm. What was the learning curve jumping from that into professional journalism? I mean, I think the, the Free Press is really good training ground. Um, it lets you kind of do you know it's it's a rare place in college that lets you be a reporter but also like you know because you're essentially a local reporter you see the consequences if you do bad reporting right like you run into these people at the gsu you have class with them like they can call you out if you just say something wrong or if you make you know the thing in journalism if you make a like anywhere you make a mistake you you correct it you know um that if you make a mistake you have to face this person and apologize to them and say i'm, I'm sorry I, I i got this wrong and i'll i'll do better next time so i think it's really important to have that you know and I think on a college campus is the perfect place to do that because you're able to see the you know if something's wrong you're able to see that but also you know I think at BU one thing that's really great is that you know the media relations people take us seriously you know they Colin Riley who I gotta give a shout out to Colin Riley he you know would always return our phone calls that day and you know, I, I still, you know, I've, I've emailed with Colin since then. Um, and it's really, you know, they take they take you seriously and, and teach you to take the craft journalism seriously um, and not to, you know, screw people over, basically. Right. So, you know, I think that was that was super important. Um, I also did a, there's this thing called a student writer at the Boston Globe, which I don't mm-hmm. know if they're still doing, but um, it was essentially like a study abroad. Like, you're able to basically work full-time, um, at the Globe, and you get paid, and um, you you know write stories for them. So I was able to kind of get some of that professional journalism experience while I was still in college. Um, they do it for they did it at, at the time way back in the day. It's just two thousand spring of two thousand one, so long ago, <laughs> so long ago. Um, so you know you're able to kind of you work with with editors and in that sort of thing. And then I worked at Boston.com. Um, you know, kind of I. My senior year. I, I also had a question, um, just generally speaking, about what your experience was transitioning from the Boston University environment, which is kind of the college bubble, mm-hmm. right? And transitioning into your role at the New York Times in Boston, you must have come to know and appreciate the city in a completely different way. 
and from when you were a student. Do you want to talk about how your, your perception of Boston evolved as, as your work evolved as well? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I, I, at the Free Press, another thing that's really great about um, being able to do that is, you know, we'd also cover city events. So it was like I met, you know, Senator Kennedy when I was in right. college, wow. and you would also, <laughs> like, you know, or Mayor Menino when he was, you know, the mayor. Um, so it was, you know, you were really able to kind of interact with people in the city, which was really, really great. But I think that, you know, once you kind of become an adult, you know, yeah. kind of graduate from and, and stay in the city, it really gives you an appreciation for the area, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I had never, I had not been to, like, Jamaica Plain before, or I had not been right. to Dorchester, that kind of thing. So it really lets you branch out and see different parts of the city that you may not have seen when you were on campus, kind of in the bubble, mm-hmm. not, I mean, where you go to, like, bc for parties or whatever you know or downtown to like some club or whatever but you wouldn't really go out into the neighborhoods of boston and it gave me much more much more of an appreciation of the fact that boston is a city of neighborhoods and they're really interesting and they're like really fascinating people there and like really good food guys you should really go out and like you know (laughs) Um, (laughs) go explore (laughs) can i I interject just to ask where are you from originally is it an urban setting stanford connecticut stanford Connecticut. yes okay yeah yeah. So, did you go down to New York City much? Do you have much urban experience before uh, before coming to BU? I used to, yeah. Like we used to kind of, uh, you know, skip class and ride Metro <laughs> North down to New York. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, you know, Stanford is not. Stanford's actually Stanford's a, it was a really great place to grow up, and that it's you know it's in that Gold Coast of Connecticut, but it is a much more of a, a city. It's a really yeah. it's a really kind of fascinating community. It's. Um, it's really diverse. It's really interesting. People are, you know, kind of people from all over the place live in Stanford. So, um, but in terms of like a big city, you know, I grew up right outside New York. So I was familiar, you know, familiar, not too familiar, but, you know, we'd go in every once in a while, you know, take take the train and, and everything else. And, um, you know, I, I initially thought I wanted to go to school in New York, um, but I went to Boston and I kind of just fell in love with Boston and with BU. So that's that's what happened. You've you've covered a lot of some of the most important stories in the past, you know, fifteen or so years in the United States. You know, to discuss the the clergy issue in in Boston. You've covered the the opioid crisis. You've covered Whitey Bulger. You've mm-hmm. been a White House correspondent. I'm just out of here. What was the what was the the experience in journalism that made the biggest impression on you just in terms of newsworthiness where where the immediate impact of the story you were covering was was immediately apparent to you as you were kind of doing the work um i mean i think there are a couple uh one was was sandy hook i mean it was just Uh, horrible it was just, just awful you know and it was kind of like the it was almost to it was like you almost couldn't wrap your head around it until you got there and then you did and you still couldn't wrap your head around the fact that this had happened you know um so that was just that was i mean it was just it was it was terrible um um, i covered hurricane sandy as well and that was also like you know they knew it was going to be bad and it was driving through these towns in new jersey that you knew that the jersey shore was basically destroyed by this by this hurricane it was i mean it was just it looked it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. I mean, houses like in the street. Um, I like went on to, uh, I went to Seaside Heights. I went to Seaside Heights, New Jersey, and I kind of like ended up sneaking onto the island because it was closed. And it was just, I mean, there's 
like we couldn't get to the water where there was literally a roller coaster in the water but i mean literally there were houses in the street the sand had shifted like seven blocks up i mean there were power lines everywhere i mean you know a, a truck in a sinkhole it was just the immediate destruction it was like this is way worse than anyone thought it was going to be so that was um so on on the Sandy Hook issue, and and this the, this might be sensitive territory, but I, I, I think I, I think it is important, especially given the climate of today. Um, one one of the people who who's grown increasingly prominent in in, in the Trump age as mm-hmm. a result of uh, not only his endorsement but also the platform that he built and the audience that he panders to, is Alex Jones. Mm-hmm. Who's uh, as, you know suggests that, that Sandy Hook is either a conspiracy mm-hmm. or a fla- false flag operation? As as a reporter who covered the story, what what kind of impact does it have on you personally in terms of your own perception of the state of news that mm-hmm. that might be taken seriously? Mm-hmm. On on d- does it hurt you? What, what what's your response to 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 the suggestion that's become unfortunately increasingly prominent mm-hmm. over time that that you know, that might, that might be a possibility. I mean, kind of seeing the, the, the pain that these people went through, um, was, it was, I mean, I'll never, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget just kind of the, being in the town at that, at that point. And, um, you know, just, just the, the, I mean, disbelief and hurt and, um, you know, just, just what these people were, were going through. It was almost, unimaginable to see you know um just kind of the people having to go to the funerals of children um and it was it was just it was incredibly incredibly difficult to to witness you know to see how how that how people could could you know have to have to have to deal with this how do you approach a situation like that as a reporter because i think when we're on this side of it you know reading the news and and we hear you know, we see a quote that's from an official and, and you know, you know, you're a part of a press pool and, and you have your opportunity to ask questions and everything's set up and formal and organized. When you show up in a place that's just been devastated, whether it be New Jersey, um, Sandy Hook, and, and the community is distraught and they're dealing personally with all with the with the, the fallout from all of that, um, how as a reporter do you do you insert yourself into that situation and try to tell that story uh, without pushing that boundary of, of people's sort of private space I mean you have to you know you have to be very like I always try to think about if I were in their shoes mm-hmm. like what would if someone came up to me and like ambushed me I would not be very happy mm-hmm. with it so you know you try to tread lightly um and, and just say to people like I'm sorry to bother you but um this is what I'm, I'm here for and we are interested in hearing your story and if you're not okay with it that's okay mm-hmm. you know um just I always try to put myself in the shoes of someone else and say like you know if you were being ambushed by somebody or you know uh it would not be a very good feeling so yeah. I mean I think it's like we really you know you really need to this is a business in many ways that is all about talking to people right yeah. so you know you want to you you have to remember that we're all human beings and all have feelings and um, you know, you want to, you want to do, you, you want to talk to people in the way that they're comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and, and sometimes people will slam the door in your face and people will yell at you and, um, you know, you have to remember that they're in, 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 a, in an unimaginable situation and it's, right. it's okay, you yeah. know? Um, so, but I think that you do need to remember that like we're all, 
you know, that you need to really be a human being. So, mm-hmm. so um, you spent about eight, nine years at the New York Times mm-hmm. in Boston, correct? Yeah. And, and then you jumped from, from Boston to the Washington Post at no, SH. No, so I did. I went, I went from Boston. I did a fellowship at the University of Michigan right, where I right, right, right. studied opiate abuse. And then I went to the AP Associated Press in New Jersey for about two years, and then came out of DC. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So, so what was? I'm I'm just curious. So so when you you actually went to Michigan to study to study the opiate mm-hmm. to to study opiate abuse at that point in time, it wasn't that prominent of an issue no. in terms of the national conversation. Yet, no, right? it wasn't. So so what drew you to that particular field of study at that particular point in time? So I had done my colleague and I had when we were in Boston, we kind of had heard a lot about pill abuse in Maine. So we started looking into it, and it was a big problem. I mean, it was a huge, huge problem. So we kind of, you know, we, we looked at all the, the different areas which we can look at, and we, you know, talked to, you know, talked to people, and we heard it was, you know, it was, it was going on in Maine, it was going on in Tennessee, in Kentucky, West Virginia at that point. This was like 2010, 2011. Um, so the was in 2010 and it was about drugged driving so people who were driving on painkillers you know mostly oxycontin and killing people basically right. so it was like remember the first anecdote it was, it was actually my, my parents live on long island now and it was not far from their house in long island on these this woman was biking on a very busy street it's like one of those like six lane mm-hmm. highways and this guy struck and killed her and it turned out that he had painkillers in a system but legally it was very gray because you know they're legal medications right. so how do you screen for that and that sort of thing mm-hmm. so that was the first story we did was about that and then we did another one i went down to tennessee and went to this automotive plant um the town where this automotive plant is and talked to people about who had been fired uh because they were taking this drug called lortab which is a, a prescription painkiller and you know they work this very heavy duty job. They like put auto glass in, 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 um, in cars. So it's like, you know, they're lifting windshields basically. Mm-hmm. And you know, they were, they were in pain and they sued. And I, at that point the suit was pending. I, I honestly don't remember what the outcome was, but, um, you know, we did that. And then the next year we did stories on babies who were born, um, dependent on opiates. So we just kind of saw this happening. Um, and, you know, frankly, the stories weren't getting a lot of traction, right. which was frustrating, which was very frustrating. It was very, yeah. very frustrating to see, you know, we were, we were doing these stories and we were pretty ahead of the curve. Um, but I was just really interested in how this, you know, what was happening and why this was happening. Um, so I, I'd been wanting to do a fellowship for a while. So went to the University of Michigan and um, and studied it. They do this great survey called Monitoring the Future, which is they look at kind of teen uh, drug use and, you know, substance abuse um, every year. So there are a lot of really good researchers there. So I had a, you know, a mentor researcher there. And we would kind of just, like, he taught me how to, like, read um, scientific studies, which is, like, really hard. Like, really, really, really hard to understand them. Um, And it was great. It was just an opportunity to kind of meet a lot of people and, you know, really kind of learn more about about what was what was happening. 
So, so, so I'm actually curious about that. Did they cover the history of the opioid crisis in, in, in the United States? Because one of the one of the things that, I mean, once you start looking into its history mm-hmm. in the U.S., you realize that heroin is no new thing in the United States. It's funny you say that because that's something I like would really like to think needs to be done more. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah, kind yeah. of looking at the history of yeah. it. And, you know, I mean, when you look, you know, when you think about it, it's, you know, uh, I mean, even like Velvet Underground, right? My Wife, My Life, like the yeah. 70s in New York yeah. City. Um, you know, people people were prescribed opiates right. in the 1800s. There was actually like an opiate crisis back then. I mean, and going way back, yeah. you have the opiate wars, wars. right? Yeah. Like yeah. there's a war over opiates. Yeah. So I mean, this in in many ways, it's it's not new. But what is new is that this current epidemic stemmed out of painkillers, right? right? Mm. So it was like these legal medications prescribed. Prescribed that people became addicted to. People were able to buy the painkillers on the street. They got very expensive because the pharmaceutical companies decided to kind of crack down on them. Prescribing practices, you know, people wanted to get as many of these out of the supply chain as they could. So prescription drug monitoring programs popped up, all of those things. So when the the drugs, the prescription drugs became cheaper, I mean, sorry, more expensive and harder to obtain, people went to heroin because mm-hmm. heroin was cheaper. And some people, you know, there's some people who argue that the correlation is not that cut and dry. And in many, there are many shades of gray as well. But, um, you know, heroin is, is very cheap and it's very easy to get. I mean, it's cheaper than a six pack of beer in some places. So, um, you, you know, and, and this is kind of where we're at now. Right. Can we, can we pause on the, on the origins of this phase of the opi- opiate crisis yeah. real quick and, and say, all right, so you have the 1970s. Mm-hmm. People are turning to sort of harder drugs mm-hmm. um, and, and then you have you know a generation of veterans coming back mm-hmm. who uh, who get hooked on on opiates on heroin um, it affects that population and then this this uh, phase of it kind of can be traced back sort of to the 90s so what happens in that lull and what's happening in the 90s that allows this massive overprescription mm-hmm. um, to start happening. And, and just to, to, to tag on to that, I mean, I think one one interesting aspect also of, of considering that period of time is that if um, you talk to specialists who work with the black community, mm-hmm. they will tell you that it's been a crisis in the black yes. community for decades now. Right. And, and, and with a righteous tone of indignation, we'll say the only reason that it's getting the attention that it is today is because it's affecting more and more white people. Right. And, and in terms of evaluating that, that chunk, that 40-year mm-hmm. chunk in which, you know, there, there's been an ebb and flow in terms of the epidemic and in terms of, in, in terms of the numbers as well, what's your, what's your understanding of, of its evolving place in different communities? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you, you, if you do talk to people in places like Baltimore and Philadelphia, they say it has always been here. And there are people who, who do say that, who say that, um, you know, this was an, an, an inner city primarily uh, African American epidemic, and then it's now it's it's gone to sur- the suburbs and in whiter places. There are people who say that that is the case. You know, there are places like Baltimore and Philadelphia where this has been a problem for a very very long time, and it's and it's getting worse in those places as well. Mm-hmm. In Philadelphia, there's a neighborhood called Kensington, which is in North Philly, and it's basically it's 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 kind of open air at this point. Um, and wow. there are it's it's I have not yet been there. Um, but it is uh, it has some of the most potent heroin in the United States. In fact, mm-hmm. I think it's the most potent heroin in the United States. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and people are, are the Philadelphia Inquirer did a very good story a couple of months ago about how um, people from Puerto Rico are being essentially sent to Philadelphia for treatment and they're ending up in Kensington. So it's it brings people from kind of all over and it, it does have the most potent heroin and one of the biggest, uh, you know, enclaves of, her- of heroin use in the United States. And like I said, Philly had, had a heroin problem, but it's just gotten even worse. Um, and now you have the introduction of fentanyl into the system, which for people who don't know, fentanyl is a synthetic narcotic. Um, it's used in hospital settings, so it is um, typically for people who are, are, have cancer or end-of-life care. It's used when women give birth. Um, so it, it has its medical place, and um, you know it, 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 is, it is helpful to the people who need it. But a couple years ago, people started kind of getting it from hospitals. There were anecdotal reports. I have not heard this, but anecdotally people said it comes on a patch and people would kind of go and dumpster dive in the patch and like try to try to get it out um but what's happening right now is it's being cut into um it's being illicitly made overseas specifically in china um so what's happening is these labs are making fentanyl and um they're sending it to the united states and it's being cut into heroin as filler so in just a few grams of this can kill you. So what's happening is that the heroin's getting more and more potent and fentanyl is killing more and more people. Um, and what's also we're also seeing now is this thing called carfentanil, which is an elephant tranquilizer. I mean, this is like literally used to tranquilize elephants is being cut into heroin too. And it's lethal. I mean, it's it it can kill you almost instantly. So, um, so I think that's that's the issue that we're seeing now is you know com- compared to the back in the day the heroin that we're seeing now it's not just heroin like you don't know what's in it and and that's part of the reason why so many people are dying now is because these very lethal things are being cut in into heroin um and you know a lot of times people don't know what's in it so they're they're using it and um you know with with often fatal consequences um this may seem like almost a silly question but what you know is it is it that people have been addicted for so long that they're increasingly seeking increased potency? Mm-hmm. Um, because on the part of the suppliers, uh, as awful as this sounds, it might be you know more wise to try to sell stuff that is not so potent mm-hmm. and, and to keep your sort of customer base alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm just curious as to what, what the impetus was for continually increasing the potency of, of these substances. Um, was it was it was it out of necessity to, to keep people addicted because mm-hmm. because they were sort of becoming desensitized to, to the level of potency that existed before? I think for some people that is the case. So I, you know, it obviously it, this is all anecdotal. There's no hard data on this from what people have told me. Um, but it it some people take it simply to get through the day because mm-hmm. withdrawal is right. is very is is awful. Um, mm-hmm. It it's it's one of the, from what people have said is one of the most terrible things you can go through. Um, there are some people who do want a better high. So, you know, there are, um, you know, I've been told by people who do treatment programs or people in law enforcement that, you know, sometimes uh, heroin has a stamp on it. Um, It's like a, you know, for example, Superman or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, you know, and and people hear that that's a good batch and they go after that. And it's often, it's it's because it's very, very potent. So, Yes, there are some people who do that. There are some people who who don't. Um, you know, the other thing that that happens, and this is awful, is some people, some people uh, you know, 
go into treatment and are, are clean for a while, but then they relapse mm-hmm. and the heroin is much more potent than they had been used to. Yeah, their tolerance goes down. So, yeah. um, so you know, that's another thing that I think is is making it is, is making it hard to fight. And the other thing is, you a lot of times don't know what's in there, right? right. So, it's filler. It's cheaper than actual heroin, so it kind of goes in there. Um, but it's you know, there's. Uh, a lot of, there could be other other drugs and other things that are in this as well so mm-hmm. um so given that you know that this crisis like we've mentioned is, is a historical problem it's something that existed it's something that existed in, in, in inner cities for a long time this current phase of the crisis has an interesting collision with with a phenomenon that's been observed in the united states called deaths of despair or an increase in de- deaths of despair specifically um in a sort of middle-aged white population um can you talk for a minute about sort of the collision of these two, uh, the collision of these two stories, and and uh, how that occurred, and also geographically where that where that started? So this this particular crisis is is there are a few states that are in, I mean it, it's everywhere. I mean it, that's yeah. the thing is it's yeah. everywhere in the United States right now. It is in every neighborhood. It is in every income bracket. It is in every you know, race, class, you name it, it is, mm. it is everywhere. Like mm. it is, it's, you can't escape from it. And I'm sure if you know people and you ask them, well, do you know anyone who mm. has has been addicted to painkillers or to heroin or initially they might say, oh, no, no, no. And then you think about it, oh, my aunt or my cousin or whatever it is, it's like, it's, it's very hard to escape it right now. But some of the places where that have been the hardest hit in the United States are Appalachia. So West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, um, Tennessee, and then in the Northeast, Massachusetts is incredibly hard hit, um, as are New Hampshire and Maine. Mm-hmm. So I think those are really kind of the epicenters. And kind of what we, we saw initially was um, from the painkillers, you know, places that have that uh, have heavy industry, people who mm-hmm. do, um, you know, literally backbreaking work, who are in pain from their jobs, got these pain pills, and then it kind of progressed from there. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where, where the main epicenters, the main epicenters are right now. Right. So there's this researcher um, from Penn State, I believe, who did a study last year that saw a correlation between, um, uh, it's, she called it deaths of despair, basically. So what it was, was, you know, places where there's really uh, not a lot of prospects. So more rural places, places that have lost a lot of their industry and their jobs uh, had a higher rate of opiate abuse than places than places that that had not. So, um, you know, I think that that kind of what needs to be looked at now is are there are there co-occurring factors? You know, some mm-hmm. people have 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 told me that they take drugs to kind of just get through the day because right. um, you know there's a lot of things going on in life that are that are difficult, um, yeah. you know, that are, that are really, really hard. Um, you know, the other thing that treatment people are, are saying is that when someone goes in for treatment right now, they're treated for their drug addiction, but, you know, there really needs to be an increased focus on mental health as well, on whether people have co-occurring depression or anxiety or, um, you, you know, other, uh, you know, me- mental health issues that really need to be looked at. So I think that's something that people want to start looking at as well to see um, if, you know, treatment can, can cover, can cover all of this. It's a much more holistic, you know, holistic thing. And I went, um, a couple of years ago, I went up to Lynn actually to, with the former drug czar, his name is Michael Botticelli. He's actually at BU Medical Center now. Um, and he's an alcoholic and he's very open about this. And he, um, 
you know, talks a lot, talks a lot about it. And we went to a recovery house and it was all men who lived there. And, you know, it was just trying, trying to get people back on their feet. And I remember one of the guys, his name was Pat, you know, said to everyone just, um, one of the first steps is to, to try to get a job somewhere. He said, if you need mm-hmm. to work at Dunkin' Donuts, like do it, like nothing, mm-hmm. just, you need to, you need to do it. Like, don't say, I can't, I can't do that. And I think that's what a lot of people in, in recovery are, are preaching as well. Just kind of try to, you know, find, find something that you can do, um, to kind of fill your life. But, you know, the sad reality is in a lot of places there just aren't jobs anymore, you know, and, and it's very, very difficult. So, um, I think that that's a field of study that needs to be delved much more into is kind of looking at the places where this is happening um, in, on, on mass and talking a little bit more about it. So, um, I'm, I'm curious about exactly what you're describing in terms of the kind of window it provides you into what the basic realities of a lot of people's lives are today. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you had to, if you had to kind of characterize the context globally in which this is occurring, the, the, the kind of socioeconomic factors, cultural factors, whatever it may be, that, that really condition the kind of outcomes that we're seeing right now, what, what would you point to primarily? I mean, it's hard because this is, like I said, this is touched everywhere. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, this is not, like, no one is immune from this mm-hmm. at this point. And I think that it, it's hard to point to one thing you know, I mean, I, I think the availability, there's a, there's just a lot of it. There's a ton of it. I mean, it, it's it's kind of everywhere. And people say it's it's just very easy to get heroin. Like, very, very, very easy. Um, so I think that the fact that there's just a lot of it out there right. is, a, is a big thing. Um, but it is, you know, it, it is really, um, it's, you, you know, in many ways it's kind of, it's kind of hard to say because it is, like, it's, it's, it is everywhere. After you finish your fellowship, in terms of covering the story mm-hmm. of uh, of the opioid crisis in the United States, what, what how, how exact, what, in what capacity did you do so? Did after after doing the fellowship, did you did you go back to? I mean, you said you were in New Jersey. It was New Jersey. So I did some heroin. I did a stories on heroin in New Jersey because heroin had become was this was 2011, 12 was on the uh, rising in New Jersey. So I did a couple of, of of stories there, and then when I came to DC, I actually started covering the White House. So I um, I actually did a profile of Michael Botticelli while I was there and some stuff, and then. I went on the campaign trail for a year and a half, so um, I did a story on because it, it really started to kind of people really really started to hear about. It. Actually, I was talking to someone the other day who said, you know, I I didn't really know much about it until the campaign right. yeah. when yeah. people really started talking about it in New Hampshire specifically. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I did that story uh, in May of 2015 about how people were starting to talk about it on the campaign trail. You know, when there were 17 Republican candidates and. Right four or five Democratic candidates. So, um, you, you know, that's when I kind of started to do it then. And that, and now um, I actually also did a, a we did a, a series on heroin in 2015. And I did a story out of New Jersey for that about, about treatment and, um, you know, the fact that there's not enough treatment that's a, beds. That's, a, that's yeah. a great series, by the way. Oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> Washington Post is, is, did a great job on that. Thanks. Um, so, and now, and now it's basically my, I, I cover drugs as part of right. my beat so in in the opiate crisis is uh is a very large part of that so right so in terms of treatment what what are some of the percent misperceptions that you experience um reporting on this uh, regard in regard to treatment well i i think there's one of the the biggest things is there's still not enough 
treatment beds for everyone who needs one. So I think that's a huge issue. And that's been going back, I mean, that was that happened in the Obama administration and happening in the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just not enough treatment beds because mm-hmm. there's not enough money right now. So and more and more states are starting to put more money into it. But, um, you know, it is still difficult to access treatment. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the ACA, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an essential benefit, but it takes a couple years to get ramped up. You know what right. I mean? So it, it does take time for these places to open. So, um, you know, that, you know, people are still dealing with that, that it's, it's difficult to get in. Um, if you, especially if you want to go into inpatient, it, it's hard. Um, so that, that's, that's one thing, um, you, you know, is uh, naloxone, which is Narcan. So basically what it is, if someone, it's, everyone has this perception that it's, uh, it's like, uh, you know, uh, um, Pulp Fiction, where they put the thing in yeah, the guy's yeah, chest and yeah, he wakes yeah, up. Yeah. Like that's actually not how it happens at all. That's not. That's not. That's not. How, that's not how it works. I mean, yeah. it, it's like the idea is is right, but it's 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 not like Pulp Fiction yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, so what it is, it, it's a drug that reverses an overdose. So it actually takes a long time for not a long time. It takes a few hours for someone to die of an overdose. Mm-hmm. It's not. It can be immediate if it's extremely extremely potent. But what it does is it basically kind of like like chokes you to death you stop breathing mm-hmm. so um and it takes if if you are overdosing it takes your brain a while to to figure that out so if you if you see someone who looks as though they're overdosing they're non-responsive um they're having other signs what you do is you take this drug and it, it you can get it in different ways there's a, like a nasal spray like an afrin type thing um also people also have needles where you you know put it in someone um, and it essentially reverses the overdose. It basically wakes wakes them up. A lot of times they wake up, they vomit, they you know kind of kind of come to. Um, so one thing that we've been seeing lately is that it, because these drugs are so potent now, it takes more and more right. to actually uh, reverse reverse an over, reverse an overdose. Um, so that's you know that's kind of been been one thing. But you know the 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 perception is that kind of you. And this, this does happen some places, but um, you know, you kind of you kind of go along your way. But most people go to the hospital, or they you know kind of get some some checked out. And a lot of places now, what they're trying to do is is get people who go to the hospital to just attempt to send them to treatment. So mm-hmm. um, you know, that's been I know in New Jersey they're trying in one county in New Jersey they're trying to do that in other places, other places as well. Um, but I think you know, kind of some of the misperceptions are that like if you want to go to treatment, you can just like walk up and like get a bed (laughs) and that's not the way it works at all they're waiting lists it's very very difficult and you know the other the other misperception is you know i've talked to a lot of people who have used drugs and they say you know you 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 have to be ready to do it as Mm -hmm. well you know people say i wasn't you know people say well why didn't why didn't you go to treatment this one uh you know few people who i talked to in new jersey for that story said you know they um they just weren't quite ready yet you know And, and it's it's really they you they said I don't, I don't be forced. They, I didn't right. want to be forced into it, and I had I had to be I had to be I had to be ready ready to do this because it's 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 a lot. It's very you know, you know it, it's emotionally and physically um, you know very very taxing. So that's that's what people have told me a lot. They have to be you know you have to be ready to do this when you do it. I mean I think that's the thing with this epidemic is like each person is very different you right. know and and everyone does things at a different. You know, it's, 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 it's people have said it's, you know, it's a public health crisis and it's right. like medical care, right? Like yeah. you require different medical care than I require kind right. of thing, you know, or one person might be willing to do something and another, yeah. another person might, might not. And a lot of times that's, that's what this is as well. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious about, I guess, what, what your perception of, I think it's, it's hard for, for, 
because we don't talk about it, mm-hmm. because we read all of the statistics, you see all of the data, all of the information, but it doesn't necessarily have an immediate impact on your sense of your, your environment, of the mm-hmm. world or society that you live in. For you, what are the concrete, tangible costs that are associated with this epidemic in terms of affecting people's lives? Mm-hmm. And, and then the, the, I, I guess the corollary of that question is, what can be done at a political level to create an environment in which we can actually start to solve this issue rather than, I mean, because clearly we're going nowhere with it right now. Well, one of the things I want to start, you know, I think is important to look at in reporting is kind of the, like the ripple effects, right? The mm-hmm. unintended consequences of this. And there are, there are a ton of them. I mean, right now, hepatitis C rates are going up because mm-hmm. of IV drug mm-hmm. use, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, it, you look at one of my colleagues did a story, uh, I just got back from a leave and they did a story while I was on leave um, about uh, foster care. Like foster care is is stretched to the brink in many places because parents are using drugs and are not caring for their children. Um, you know, places where they can't hire enough people because people aren't passing drug tests kind of things. So I think it has a lot of ripple effects for society at large, um, you know, uh, to take a look at, you know, now in schools they have naloxone kind of thing. Um, I think politically, I think one of the the silver linings is that this is very, at this point, one of the few legitimately bipartisan issues in the country. You know, you have Republicans and Democrats really working together on this and, and, you know, really wanting to look for solutions. And I, I think that that, you know, that's something that, uh, it's not happening in a lot of other places right now, but um, you know, I actually just wrote a story last week about how a number of states want to limit the the length of of opioid prescriptions. And um, in Congress, you have you know John McCain, who's a Republican, and Kirsten Gillibrand, who's a Democrat, came together for a bill on uh, on limiting it to seven days nationwide. So I think that that you know that is a um, you know, one of the things that, that people point to as a as as a, the bright spot that there is really bipartisan um, you know efforts behind behind this. Um, you know, I, it depends on who you talk to on what they think could work. Some people believe that medicated assisted treatment, which is using a a, a, a drug called Suboc, for the most part Suboxone or Methadone, yeah. to um, basically keep people. Uh, you know, it is an opiate, but it, it basically keeps a little bit of opiate in your system. Mm-hmm. Um, they think that that is the way to go. Other people don't think that's the way to go. They think that it's um, it's a dangerous drug that gets sold in the street. So, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of kind of shades of gray in there, and a lot of uh, very um, you know very differing opinions on how best to solve this. But it, but at this point, people know that something needs to be done. So they are kind of trying to work together and talk to one another about how best to do this because it, it you know as I said before, it's really in every community in the United States. If you think it's not in your community, you're lying to yourself. Right, yeah. right. And, and in terms of medicated assistant treatment, you read some stories. I actually uh, read one. They talk about um, prescription heroin itself. Yes, that's actually something that I think needs to be looked at. Yeah, yeah that, I mean, legalization is right. on the table as well. Right, yeah. I mean, it's like... It's gotten to the point where ideas that would have been completely foreign to our political dialogue are now being considered Right. Right. Well, precisely, in terms of being looked at, I mean, being looked at, like, journalistically. Like, we have, you know, kind of, like, I'm not endorsing anything. Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, so right now in, uh, they're looking at it in Canada. Um, Right now, Canada actually has a very bad heroin problem, particularly in Vancouver. Um, 
and in Switzerland, actually, le- heroin was legalized years ago. Mm-hmm. So you can go, um, you know, get a prescription and, and use it. One of the things that I wrote about a couple of months ago is um, what they are calling safe injection rooms. Mm-hmm. So basically what yeah. it is is you go in if you are, um, let's say, let's for sake of argument, say heroin user. So you, you, you bring your heroin off the street and you go in and you inject it and you get high, but you are under medical supervision. So what they're doing is... Um, you know, monitoring your your heart rate and your pulse and your oxygen rate and that sort of thing. And actually, in Boston right now, there is a center where you cannot use the drugs in the center. But what happens is people use the drugs like down the street and they come in and they are monitored. It's um, Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, so they are they are they are kind of just collecting a lot of data and looking at you know finding out what happens when when people do um, do use drugs. So there's actually in in January Seattle okayed to um two two safe injection rooms and one is going to be in seattle and one in king county in in the suburbs and there has been a lot of resistance particularly in the the areas surrounding seattle there is i talked to a a state legislator from federal way who um is very much against it so um you know it has been approved it has not gotten off the ground and it will probably be a while until it does so it, my my understanding the, uh, my understanding again this is anecdotal is that when one of the one of the, I guess the, the really negative consequences of the introduction of fentanyl and carfentanyl yeah. in heroin generally speaking is that it actually escalated the dynamic by which people would seek doses mm-hmm. that provoked overdoses. Yeah. So just because just because it meant that you you had an extremely potent mm-hmm. um, you had an extremely potent dose and that was desirable if you're trying to get high, right? Yeah, um, anecdotally, people have said that. Yeah, yeah that, that mm-hmm. you know it's kind of chasing the the, the more cha- potent yeah, yeah the more potent the drug. Yeah, yeah, and there's no like I said, there's no hard evidence of that, but anecdotally, people have said that that's what some yeah. some people do not not everyone obviously, but some people. Are, are so since you since you started out in journalism, how has the field evolved from your standpoint you in know, terms of your immediate experience as a journalist? So it's funny, right? Because I'm kind of of this weird age. So I'm old. I'm 37. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know, not, not that old, but um, it's been kind of weird. Because so I'm in this weird spot, right? Where I am a digital native. Like I, you know, I've always had, you know. I guess I started email in like high school, I guess, which makes me a digital native. Um, you know, always had a phone, texted or whatever. Um, you know, kind of know how to use all the, like, know how to use the Snapchat kids. Uh, you know, so. Um, but when I started, it was interesting. Like the web was kind of an afterthought. It was the paper. It was you need to get your stories in the paper on A1. And, and you know, if you work in a newspaper, there is still. That, that is still a thing, right? You want to get on the front page <laughs> yeah, of the newspaper, yeah. even though I realize that, like, I read everything on, online. online. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, so it was, it was really an after, it was really an afterthought. So, um, you know, in a big story, you'd be, like, writing for the paper and, like, you'd send some stuff to the website. And now it's the opposite. I mean, now it's, like, you need, if you're at a big story, you need to get something on the internet immediately, especially for, like, push alerts or... Um, you know, social or whatever it is, you need to just get everything on. So when I first started, it, like I said, it was kind of an afterthought. And a lot of my job was just kind of roam. I mean, it was great. It was roaming around New England in my car, like going to see cool stuff. But there was no pressure. There was no Twitter. There was no, 
really like web like immediacy. So um, you mentioned the Whitey Bulger coverage. I remember the Whitey Bulger when he was captured. I went to South Boston and I wrote like a scene piece about what people there think. It was the first story of mine ever. They're like, oh, we're going to put this on the web. Wow. So what was that? What year was that? That's, like, like, that's pretty late. That's like 2010. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Like 2010. Yeah. So yeah. it was like, okay, we'll do that. So it was pretty. It was pretty late. I think most of them like just went in the paper and on the web. But they're like, okay, yeah. this will be web. This will only live on the internet. It will not go in the paper. So I was like, oh, and people were like, I'm sorry, and I was like, oh, that's fine, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's fine, it, you know, like I'm totally cool with that. Actually, I prefer it. And um, you know, and now obviously it's the immediacy. So um, when I covered the 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 marathon bombing, and that was my first real. I know I shouldn't say that. Uh, Hurricane Sandy was my first real use of like tweeting, like live tweeting, kind of doing stuff. And I worked at the Associated Press at the time, which I don't know if they still do, but they had this this rule that you couldn't tweet about anything until the story went out, which was really weird. Yeah, yeah it sounds backwards. Yeah. Today. So, um, but I was just like, well, I'm here and I have these photos. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm yeah. just gonna start tweeting. So I just kind of started tweeting photos and like observations and like what was going on. And I found it to be a really powerful tool. And it was really at the marathon bombing when I really like found out the power of Twitter. It was this crazy thing where, um, you know, what happened was the suspects got in, there was a report they were getting in, they were in Watertown and they were getting into a shootout. So I, you know, rushed over and I lived in Brighton. So I kind of knew the area Mm -hmm. relatively well. So, you know, we rushed over, and I remember there was a police officer there, and I was tweeting, and he says, if you want to live, get off your cell phone. And I was like, Holy so shit. I tweeted that, and I was like, oh, my God, they're here. And, like, in my head, all I could think was, was they must they must think they have bombs because, like, the cell phone could, like, set it off. So I tweeted that, and it was, like, 1 in the morning or something, but it just, like, went nuts. Like, it yeah. just went viral, and I was like, oh, wow, like, I definitely, like, kind of understand the power of, yeah. of social media now, you know? Um, so... It's that, also an incredible line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was yeah. like, whoa, wow. So, yeah, so I, like, I like you know, it was, like, one of those where I was so on autopilot, I just, like, tweeted it and then thought about it, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, wow. uh, yeah, this is, like, really intense. So, um, so now, obviously, it's all digital. It's all social media. So when I was on the campaign trail, I started. I started very early on the campaign trail in February or March of 2015. Oh God, I actually kind so of like. Sick of it. <laughs> uh. I, it was like a lot of. It, it was you know. I really felt like I lived on an airplane. Like I really, yeah. honestly, felt I lived on an oh airplane at a certain point. Um, so. You know, well, no one was out then, and I was kind of overlapping between the White House and the trail for the first like six weeks or so, and then I went right on the trail and. Um, you know, no one else is in these, like, tiny, you know, in the middle of yeah. nowhere, New Hampshire or Iowa yeah. or South Carolina. So it was kind of, like, a way to get every, you know, get everything out. Um, so that was, you know, that was really valuable to just kind of, because, you know, especially that early, like, you're not necessarily writing stories all the time yeah. or big stories, but just to kind of get color out there and everything right. else. So, but... And who were you, who were you covering? I covered uh, Ted Cruz and Rand Paul for the first part, and then I went exclusively on Cruz for... Uh, until like starting in the the fall of 2015, did him all through the Iowa caucuses, and then 
when he dropped out, I went on to like an issue, more of an issues based yeah. beat. Mm. So, so I'm so I'm curious. You mentioned uh, you mentioned Chris Daly, who covered uh, the Dukakis campaign mm-hmm. back in '88, yeah, and who spoke a lot about getting to know him, yeah. And so that's one of the things that supposedly has changed a lot mm-hmm. in in journalism, specifically around campaigns, is the degree of exposure, the amount of interaction journalists who are assigned to specific candidates have with that candidate mm-hmm. throughout that campaign. Yeah. Did you actually get to know Ted Cruz a little bit? Yeah. Or yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. So we have to ask because we were actually talking about this right before we started the interview. It's like yeah. Ted Cruz is no longer the most hated man in Washington. Yeah, he's what, been dethroned. What, what, so, so th- because that's that's the that's the public perception of him, pretty much on both sides of the aisle, is yeah. that he's a pretty despicable individual. Blah blah blah, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. What was your, what was your impression of Ted Cruz, the man? Let alone the politician. I like him. I think he's he's a, he's really? a yeah, yeah yeah he's a he's a nice guy. <laughs> he was yeah he was, you know really he he understands like the press's he understood the press's role and um, he, you know I had I had you know really good interactions with him so um, yeah. So were, were were you able to were you able to to kind of distinguish between Ted Cruz the person that you would talk to and then Ted Cruz the the political figure who was campaigning for for the nomination? But like, aren't all like yeah. politicians? Oh, you know sure. what I mean? Like, yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt about you know, that. But so. in, in terms of just him as a person specifically, yeah, I mean, like every politician I've ever covered, you know, you kind right. of talk to them for you know, like you know the. Politicians are politicians, right? right? They have like their public facing, their public facing thing. They, you know, they, they do their thing, and then when they don't do their thing, they're not right. doing their thing, you right. know. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think like the thing about the campaign trail, especially when you start out early, is you know, you you see people face to face, right? So you you do get to know them because if you're one of like. 13 people in a room in Iowa, you know what I mean? It's like you got to, you get to know each other, you know, you get to respect each other, you know, work-wise, you get to know each other a little bit personally, you know. I think that's that's one of the beauties about going on the campaign trail early is that, you know, with someone is that you you do get to like, you know, kind of know know who they are and and you know, kind of know their know their staff and everything else. So in some ways it's like it's I think that, you know, uh Trump was different because he did big rallies, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and Ian Clinton was different because she always big did, did big rallies and always had like a ton of security around her. But like any of the other candidates, you know, you go in and it's like you and like 15 people in like a barn in New Hampshire kind of thing, you know, kind of just very casual, very like, you know, I mean, they're obviously there to like sell themselves, but you do, you do get to know know the people and their staffs and everything and everything else and i had i had a really great experience covering the first campaign it was um it was a lot of fun it was a whole lot of fun so hey podcast listeners this is kobe again that's the end of our conversation with Ms. zesma we hope you enjoyed it we wanted to extend one more thank you to her for sharing her time with us now, I'm not sure where you're listening to this podcast. It might be on viewcommonthread.com, or it could be on the iTunes store if you searched the Common Thread podcast. Either way, we hope you subscribe to our podcast. That way you can hear the rest of the content in this Washington, D.C. series, and you can hear the other content that we're producing all semester long. Again, you can go to viewcommonthread.com, or you can search the Common Thread podcast in the iTunes store in order to subscribe. Thanks so much, and until the next time, we'll keep looking for the common thread.